0: Hello, welcome to Late to It. I'm Naomi Frisby. I'm Kirsty Dill, and this is a podcast about reading books at the right time. Kirsty, what have you been reading on time this week?
1: On uh, properly on time, and as advertised last week, I have read a hardback within a month of me having bought it. Way. Well done me. Um <laughs> I've been reading Our Wives Under the Sea by Julia Armfield, which uh was published very recently by picador Um now uh Julia Armfield wrote Salt Slow collection of short stories a couple of years ago, which I have to say I've not read. Um I mean it's been recommended to me 50 billion times, and I do own a copy, but I have not read it. I did not get that, I did not read that within a month of purchase. Um and this is her first full length novel. So, this is about a couple who are Miri um, and Leah. Leah works for a place that is known simply as The Centre, um, very mysteriously. And she is a sort of biological, sort of a marine biological researcher. And uh, she goes, she is sent on this three week. Uh, trip on a submarine down to research life um, quite deep down in the sea. There's a three uh, three-person crew, and on their way down, basically all their systems cut out apart from their breathing. Those are sort of like their CO CO2 scrubbers, so they can breathe and everything like that. But the submarine cuts out, no power, no nothing, no comms, nothing. So they're just stuck on the seabed, and they end up being stuck down there for six months after which um, they regain power and they're able to return to the surface. Um, Now, it is told in in kind of alternative chapters between Leah and Miri, who's her her wife, and actually the bulk of the novel is is from Miri's point of view, who is first of all sort of processing the fact that her wife just disappeared for six months when it was meant to be three weeks and the center had been very evasive and not contacting them and just saying, Oh no, it's fine. You know, trips, you know, these research trips do go on a bit long sometimes. And then suddenly she's just back with no, no, she just gets a phone call one day going, um, you can come and collect her now. Um, and, uh, Leah is obviously very changed by her experience under the sea. Uh, she is, you know, doing things like drinking salt water and spending more and more of the day in the bath and her skin is going strange and all this other stuff is happening. Um, so we basically have um alternative, alternative chapters of Miri dealing with Leah as she is now and then Leah talking about what has happened um, on the submarine. And it's I mean, there's sort of a weirdness to it. Um, I suppose you know, science fiction feels um, like too strong a phrase, but there is a there is a element of the weird and otherworldly about it. Um, it's very, very beautifully written. Like she just writes relationships so incredibly well. Um, it's really sad you know, you're seeing Mary kind of deal with the fact that this woman that she loved has come back completely altered by her experiences and sort of mourning her lost wife essentially. Um, but also there's there's so much, in, in Leah's chapters, there's so much sort of tension and dread as you see them just trapped on, the three of, the, the, the three of them trapped on this submarine at the bottom of the sea um, and there's weird noises and one of them thinks they hear voices coming through the vents and all this sort of stuff so yeah it's it's um i really really liked it it's it's definitely made me want to well i already wanted to go and read her short stories i do as i say own them but i just um haven't got around to it but i want to get round to it it's very good it's <laughs> recommended
0: it sounds really interesting. I have read one of her short stories, so I also have the short story collection. Um, I got sent it because Armfield won the White Review competition, which I might have mentioned I got shortlisted for once upon a time. Um, <laughs> and I'm always really interested in reading like what's been selected every year, because I think yeah. really, um, fascinating stories get picked for yeah. it. And I really love the story that she one with so I am really interested and I really like stuff that's set in around near the sea although being trapped on a submarine like however many phallums below scares the shit out of me so yeah that's very claustrophobic
1: yeah it is and each there's sort of five sections to the book and they're named after the different zones of the sea which mm. you, you you know which Leah tells you about at some point so she's always been sort of Obsessed with the sea. So, you know, there's like the sunlight zone and the twilight zone, the midnight zone, the, the the abyssal zone. You know, it's just as it gets darker and darker, and you know, if you go out through that airlock, essentially the weight of the sea is going to crush you to death immediately. Oh, God. So, but, but that's what's so good about the writing is that she she's that kind of tension and dread and horror, you know, that sort of psychological horror. But at the same time, in other chapters, she's writing about you know normal everyday relationships and you know overhearing the neighbor's tea you know the, the, the neighbor upstairs in their flat plays their tv too loud and to, to be able to in the same book i think talk about those sort of everyday very recognizable normal occurrences annoyances whatever but then at the same time have this parallel narrative where there's potentially a fucking sea monster <laughs> And it all makes sense within the same book, I think is incredibly clever. And you know, I think it would be very easy to bugger it up. And I don't <laughs> I, I don't think she
0: does. <laughs> yeah, it's made me want to go and read so I try not to read things about books before I start them. I don't know if I've said this on here before. Hmm. Uh, but that kind of has made me want to go and read because now I want to know whether she wrote the because my thing would be to write the two na- narratives separately. So I'm intrigued as to whether that's what she did or not. Anyway, <laughs> yeah,
1: I don't know. I do. I mean, it's it's interesting. I, I haven't read Salt Slide as I said, mm. but given the title and everything, you know, how much is that around water and you know, I I, I mean I find water completely fascinating. I I'm I mean horrifying as well at those sort of depths, but. I love the sea. Um, I've managed to end up living in the most landlocked county in the entire country, which is such a stupid move. Um, you know, but whenever I can, I want to go to the sea, and I, I, I am drawn to reading about the sea. So um, my shelf of sea authors
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: expands. But yeah, no, I, it's it's really good, and um, if you buy it in hardback, I recommend reading it immediately. <laughs>
0: I will not be buying it in hardback but I will definitely get it when the paperback comes out if the library doesn't have it before that's use my... your
1: library everyone
0: yes that's my new favorite thing at the moment is uh using my local library on a regular basis what about you what have you been reading funnily enough we're going to talk about something that I didn't get from the library that I did buy in hardback because I pre-ordered this and I never pre-order poetry but I pre-ordered the debut collection from Warsonshire, Shire, which is called Bless the Daughter Raised by a Voice in Her Head." If um you are thinking, "Bloody hell, that name sounds familiar," but I don't know who she is. There's, there's po- possibly three reasons that you would heard you would have heard of Warsonshire. Shire. She was uh, the first ever Young Poet Laureate of um London. Uh, there's some video footage actually that I very much recommend uh, people go and watch um, from the South Bank Centre because that's where the Young Poet Laureate is based. based um, and she reads three poems from this book some of them have changed slightly there is one that I will talk about in a bit that I really wanted to read, but it's got a line in Somali in it, and I do not want to be that white person who butchers the line of Somali. So. You don't, let's not do that. <laughs> yeah, but the poem's really interesting, so I will tell you about it in a minute. But yeah, absolutely go and listen to that. The other reason you might have heard of her is because um, she's become quite famous for a poet called Home, which starts with the line, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark, which has um, been repeated quite often um, during recent refugee crises. And the other reason is because she is the poet who wrote the sections that Beyonce speaks between songs on Lemonade. She was personally selected by Mrs. Knowles Carter. Uh, Carter Knowles, Knowles Carter. I don't know which way around she says it. Beyonce. <laughs> yes, for uh, for that. So there's loads of reasons why you might have heard of her. She is a fucking brilliant poet. I mean, like I just said, and when it's come out in, in hardback, which is, rare you know like Simon mm. Armitage and Caroline Duffy get hardback poetry collections um the the two that have come out recently is this one and Ocean Biong's yeah. one which I do want to read as well because he's an incredible poet too so yeah so this came out um a few weeks ago and I binge read the entire thing last night <laughs> basically which sounds like I read it to talk about on here but actually I had other things I could have talked about but I read this and then was like yeah this is good so um it's got poems in about being an immigrant because her family are Somalian and they came to London. She now lives in America. Um, there are lots of poems about girlhood and what it means to, like, come of age. There are some really brilliant bits um, that made me, ones that made me laugh more than anything about um, popular culture, really. The, 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 last poem in the collection is, um, I think it's the last poem, hang on a second, I'm just flicking. no, the, the penultimate poem is called Bless Grace Jones and is a bit of a tribute <laughs> to Grace Jones there's another Amazing.
1: one
0: called Angela Bassett Burning It All Down which is about the film Waiting to Exhale although I did last night watch um, the Spike Lee film uh Chirac, which is a retelling of Strata and Angela Bassett it's incredible in that too so I very much enjoyed that um there's another one that's that's more um dis- don't say disturbing. I don't know if that's the right word, but what some of these do is they take something political, they, they sort of twist and at the end, which is done really nicely. And there's one um about the remains of a murdered Somali woman found in Lewis County, Washington State in 2010. For a decade, her body was misidentified as Caucasian. Jane Doe and it's called Drowning in Dawson's Creek and she sort of Im- the narrator imagines herself as this woman and she switches from like thinking about being identified as Caucasian what that person sort of what she'd given up as a narrator like that interest in Dawson's Creek wanting um. to be white like being interested in white boys uh <laughs> i dreamed of white boys and ladders leading to bedroom windows if you've watched Orson's Creed, that'll be so, familiar. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. familiar um yeah so loads about this that i absolutely loved like just a really quite a broad-ranging collection as well mm. and as i always do when i do poetry week i like to read one so people uh, get a taste as i said i do go recommend that people read Go and watch her when um, she's quite a bit younger. It's about a decade ago when she's reading at South Bank. But it's really good. And the bit, oh, I was going to talk about the poem that she reads. So it's called Bless This House is the third poem she reads. And it's about, well, it starts with, Mother says there are lots of rooms inside all women. Sometimes the men, they come with keys. And sometimes the men, they come with hammers. And and you think that it's going to be, and and there is a, a, this suggestion that um, maybe some sort of rape or violation could have taken place. In the the version that she reads at South Park, she talks about Rihanna and um, Chris. I have erased his memory from my... Chris Brown. Chris Brown, thank you. I won't say Chris Rock, but that's because of last week's controversy with Will Smith. (laughs) So I knew it wasn't him. So it's around that time that they were together. So she changes yeah. a bit of the lines to talk about them too, which is which is not in this edition. I don't know whether that's for legal reasons or just because Fran <laughs> moved on. Um, but yeah, and what happens is that basically <laughs> um, the narrator starts um, keeping these men in. so they, they just shrink and they're inside a body and wandering about. <laughs> so this line's like, "My first found a trapdoor in my armpit. He fell in. He hasn't been seen since." <laughs> It's just brilliant and very much my sort of thing. So I very much enjoyed that. However, the one that I'm going to read um, is one of these where there's that sort of that that shift that happens. And also I picked it because it mentions um, pigeon bloods in the first line. And obviously we have a thing on this podcast about pigeons. As, you know. <laughs> pigeons. Yeah. as regular listeners will know. So <laughs> this is called Bless the Blood. Sophia used pigeon blood on her wedding night. Next day, over the phone, she told me her husband smiled when he saw the sheets, how he gathered them under his nose, closed his eyes and dragged his tongue over the stain. She mimicked his baritone, how he whispered her name, Sophia. Pure, chaste, untouched. We giggled over the static. After he praised her, she smiled, rubbed his head imagined his mother back home parading blood-soaked sheets through the town, waving at balconies, swollen with pride, arms fleshy, wings bound to her body, ignorant of flight.
1: I really want to read it. It's it's, um, obviously being, you know, following lots of book people and publishing people on Twitter and Instagram and so on. I've seen it in lots of places. But I think it's the first time I've seen actual kind of uh sort of posters outside for a poetry collection, um, which I have uh, uh, popped up very close to where I work actually in Hoban. Um I was walking around the corner the other day and it was just like a row of, you know, like bill posters mm. um, for the collection. And it was just like, yes, more poetry on posters, please. Um, um
0: yeah, the Beyoncé Knowles effect that one, I think.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um I'd- I, I also think very cool. It's a really striking cover as well.
0: It is really striking. It's beautiful. And I think um I think it's interesting that so she some of the poems that Beyonce reads on Lemonade came out in Shire's first pamphlet, which was called Teaching My Mother How to Give Birth. And it's I can't remember that it came out. I know I've got it, but it, there's been quite a long gap. She's taken her time writing this, and I think that's really interesting that because she probably I'm sure she, she would have had people chucking money at her to um mm. to get this out, and she's taking her time to do something incredible, I think. So fair play to her. Who's published it? Um. Oh, sorry. Did no, you no, know,
1: a genuine I'm question a
0: rather than... A, name the publisher? It's Chatham Witness, which also is, um, like, you know, that's quite a big deal. Literary. I guess. It's yeah, most, yeah, of yeah. Poetry, most of the poetry, at least that I read... Comes from small presses mostly, so yeah. So yes, big literary superstar wasn't shy, <laughs> but yeah, that that's you know, if that's people's entry, I think that's that's partly why I picked it to talk about tonight. Because if she is a gateway to people to read poetry who wouldn't normally read poetry, then I am all for it.
1: Yeah, definitely, absolutely. Um, now hmm. the two <laughs> oh it's
0: gonna be a hell of a week, isn't it? Um. We Last have week, Kirsty, got... I described it as cock week, and I stand by it. <laughs> yes,
1: so to speak. It's um, it's it, uh, yes. Right. So, <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so the two books we're talking about this week are Lightning Rods by Helen De Witt, uh, which is published uh, by and Other Stories, which came out in two thousand and eleven originally published by New Directions in New York. And uh, then we have The Appointment by Katerina Volkma, which is Fitzcaraldo, and came out in a year. <laughs> it is on a page. <laughs> came out last
0: year. Came out last year. came out last year.
1: Came mm. out last year. 2021. Yeah, 2021. Right, good. Now, oh, okay, we're going to start with Lightning Rods, which I think is probably a sensible move. This is great, this book. This is I mean,
0: a I was just gonna put in there, it's the slightly less controversial of the two. <laughs> the people yes. And people gonna listen to this go, sorry, what?
1: <laughs> <laughs> if 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 anyone listening to this already knows what um lightning rods is about and we go, right, this this is the we are home and free with this one. <laughs> um, yeah. So um this is, it's an American novel, it is a satirical novel, it was shortlisted, might be long might be shortlisted, certainly listed for the Bollinger Everyman uh, Prize for comic fiction um, a few years ago. It is, as that would suggest, a very funny book. It is about a man called Joe, who is a salesman, a failing salesman, who's at the beginning of the novel He's trying to sell Electroluxes and um, oh God, Encyclopedia Britannicas uh, as, a, as a door-to-door salesman and frankly he is not very good at it, he can't really sell anything at all um, and he goes back to his his uh, house he's, and he is well indulging in a little self-care um, and his sexual fantasies somehow become his next great business idea (laughs) it's just ridiculous um and he realizes that really what is holding back uh productivity well the greatest threat to the modern workplace in America is the threat of sexual harassment um and not not for all the reasons like you know it's damaging to women, but because it really you know, um, interrupts the productivity of those alpha male business guys who might end up ruining their career by being awful, awful people. So he decides, uh, based on his own sexual fantasy of a, a woman <laughs> being penetrated from behind without expecting it, which others might call rape. Um, and he convinces companies to install, I don't know, saying this out loud, is even more batshit than when you're reading it, that to basically install a hatch in a disabled bathroom, whereby when the fluence is upon them, the gentleman can go to the disabled toilet, the back end of a woman's just going to get trolled through and he can um, amuse himself and then get back to work and be productive. And the idea takes off. And that is basically the starting point. The lightning rods are these women who are employed, some of whom are genuinely um, sort of uh, secretaries and office workers, and others are secretaries and office workers who also provide an extra service to their male colleagues. And there is anonymity. They don't know who the, um men are necessarily and they don't know who the lightning rods are and hilarity
0: ensues i just said a minute there that i hadn't thought about when i was reading the book mm-hmm. because this whole idea that like men can go and have anonymous sex and then they're going to be rare in school. surely there's a flaw here because they'd be falling asleep like <laughs> the <cat people, laughs> well they get going that got missed out didn't it it's- yeah, yeah, they're straight, they're straight back, uh, straight back to their computers. <laughs> anyway, I don't know, I don't really know how appropriate it is to say that I love this book, but I love <laughs> this book.
1: Just remember, everyone, this is a less controversial book that we're talking about. today.
0: <laughs> it was one of those that I thought, if you missed the point of this, you could come out absolutely furious <laughs> about it. And, I, and bits of it, I was like, God, imagine, imagine. I mean, I think. Twitter Twitter was already a thing when this came out, but I was like, I can just imagine Twitter getting hold of it now and like all the threads that had been written about it that would just be like so out of context. Or um,
1: you'd get people reading it and going, oh, actually, that's a cracking idea. I'm gonna go speak to HR <laughs> <read> immediately. <it> <laughs> Probably to cough as well. Um <laughs> uh,
0: like that's part of that's part of the sort of not joy of it but the, the reason it works is that you could you could almost see it happening couldn't you it's not yeah. like that it sounds far-fetched but actually when you start looking at things like when so it talks about his whole idea is that basically these really high-performing men this is a this is a problem for them that you know they're going to get done for sexual harassment and they'll lose their careers how is that any different to the, the defenses that we are in real trials about how it's going to destroy these men's lives and you're like hmm um, sorry. Was there a woman involved that you like raped and you know gave yeah you know PTSD and whatever else too for her entire life and um... accidentally? Yeah, absolutely. Accidentally,
1: absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> um, it's it, it it is absolutely that um idea of. It's all being spoken about in terms of, well, actually, this protects women from unwanted advances. But actually, all it's about is protecting both the reputation of these wonderful men and also, kind of, capitalism, productivity. You know, all the HR departments love it because absenteeism is down and mm-hmm. productivity is up, and you know, they're not; these men aren't causing a hassle in the workplace. Therefore. You know, companies aren't at risk of being sued for millions of dollars because of their behavior, the behavior of their staff and so on and so forth. So actually, the, the the women are right at the bottom of the pile in terms of who they're trying to protect. But it, you know, it all sounds very grand. Going, oh, really? You know, we're 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 preventing terrible abuse happening. Um. But but yeah, no, it's it's just lots of rich white men being. Protected,
0: yes, and I thought there was an amazing bit. So, so in the, the company that it's sort of focused on, that this first, um, it's not the first person trials because the trials this sort of bit weird, um, kissing thing that goes yeah, spin on the bottle, yeah, and spin the bottle run by a computer that's a little bit weird, bit like Christmas party without any Christmas party type yeah. atmosphere going on in the office. Bit odd, and then they decide to try and carry on with it. But anyway, uh, but in the company that it's mainly focused on, it's this guy called Ed Wilson, who everybody thinks that it's been installed because of Ed Wilson. And there's this just this amazing bit where he walks out of the toilets having, you know, um had sex with whichever lightning rod is in there, and decides all of a sudden that this is amazing because you know. Women have had to put up with this for ages and it's not fair on them. And now he's sorted and he's nicer to everybody. Yeah. And you're like, great.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's the the guy who um ends up getting a girlfriend because he 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 feels because of the lightning rods that he doesn't have to pressure this woman that he's just met into sex and therefore he's a better. He's a better
0: boyfriend because he's treating her like a human being. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I knew that word too. <laughs> <laughs> although, oh no, I shouldn't give a spoiler. She does find out eventually, so uh, yeah, no, she does. She although does. I think it's, it's there's a really interesting conversation. So it does kind of do both sides. So we d- we do hear stuff, and actually, my favourite characters were the women. Yeah, uh, Lucille, who's recruited quite early on as one of the lightning mods, who takes no shit basically and renee we meet later so there's a point where so they're all supposed to be anonymous so not even the other lightning rods are meant to know who's a lightning rod and basically lucille's aware that joe's a bit shit so she is the woman who is sorting all this out she's the one who puts in all the pastoral care for the women she's the one who asks for adjustments like there's a button in case and if they need help you know somebody's being aggressive or abusive or whatever might happen um and she says, like, she knows just shit at his job because she knows who all the lightning rods are and she shouldn't do. But mm. she comes across one in the toilets um, crying one day and, and she's upset. And she, she talks about her boyfriend finding out and she's just like, do you use tampons? Do you tell him about that? <laughs> and it's very matter of fact about what the fuck's this got to do with anything. Crack on, love. And there's a bit of that. There's sort of that bit between like different standards, um, between men and women, but also you sort of back to that thing, and it is why is the default always male? Why is it always that the women have to? And Lucille does have that sort of internalized misogyny that she's like, Some people are cut out for this job, therefore they shouldn't be doing it. And you're like, Hang on a minute, Lucille, should this job actually exist? Is jolly yeah. the question, but she's she does all right. I, I really like this sort of like joke that's within it about Lucille ends up um, becoming a really famous <laughs> lawyer and Renee we'll talk about a bit more in a minute ends up um, the first ever black female Supreme, Supreme Court judge and it's that kind of joke about women who do sex work to put themselves through law school <laughs> and these two sort of do it and end up high up and also I couldn't help thinking about talk about men's careers and who gets you know saved from the indignity of having a rape charge on their sheet, Brett Kavanaugh, Yeah. <laughs> and thinking about sort of Renee in that position. And, and actually, you know, it's that thing, in it, that even though it very much feels sort of status quo-ish, that actually those women who then can afford to go on and, and do what they do are in that position to change the world at that point.
1: Yes, absolutely. But also that, you know, particularly on Lucille's side, you know, everything she does ends up being to protect men so she's a lightning rod and that's essentially to protect men from sexual harassment charges she protects joe in a sense because you know it's it's through her ideas and the way she works and the way she talks to the other women and the way she deals with the men that actually joe's idea keeps going from strength to strength because essentially this is Joe is a, a failing, inadequate salesman who's had a wank and tried to turn it into money. Um and has accidentally been successful, but you know, has not thought through any of the kind of ramifications you know, hasn't thought through anything, has just, you know, been absolutely led by his cock into this. And at every point, it's Lucille who basically problem solves for him. So there's a point when renee first appears um and i absolutely love renee at this point where renee is black and joe goes well you can't because the 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 whole thing this lightning rods the whole way it works is through anonymity so people would know if if there was a black woman they would know who you are so I can't give you the job to protect you. It's all to protect you. Mm. And she goes, Well, that's against the Equal Opportunity, you know, Equal Employment, Equal Opportunities Act. Um, you know, and actually the way you, you know, you you would just have to get the way you solve this is to have a a more diverse workforce so that there's a mixture of races and people don't know who's who he's like well how am I supposed to do that and she's like with respect that is your problem (laughs) you know that's kind of I'm not solving it for you but you know Lucille actually does solve the problem by going well what about if the women are clad in PBC you know black PBC and then you can't see what race they are um but then she goes on she goes to law school and becomes a litigator and ends up protecting the careers of of high-flying men you know, through that job as well. So, you know, she ends up. At, as much as I loved her as a character, ultimately her entire career is devoted to protecting inadequate men.
0: Also, I mean, spoiler, but she marries <laughs> she marries Ed Wilson, and he's
1: the I worst, know, of the, worst. <laughs> the worst of the
0: worst. Um,
1: yeah, and that yeah, just the fact that everyone knew that Ed Wilson was the issue. It just is like everyone knew, everyone knows.
0: One of the bits I loved about that, when everyone knows that it's Ed Wilson, is this. So one of the things that um, DeWitt tries to do is address disability race. Like she she ticks all the boxes for for all the things that you might end up having to think about. And I mean, the disability side of it comes as a a sort of bonus for Joe because he decides that what he needs is an adjustable toilet. So you're not having sex with a toilet. In the cubicle, and once he's done that, he realises it can be at different heights and used for different different people, and la la la. So they gets a little sideline, which earns him more money. But <clears throat> this bit really made me laugh. So this so it's talking about people um, not being sure whether to use it or not, and you know, at first everyone had just assumed it was Ed Wilson. <laughs> I think this is a bit when someone gets oh yeah, so. Word gets around because the fire alarm goes off and word gets around that there's um, trouble, which it turns out later is a bit of a ploy setting the fire alarm off because then they can use this almost as a bit of an urban myth that stops Mm -hmm. anybody misbehaving because that's what, you know, they say that's why it went off. Anyway, Bill was initially suspicious. He had already experienced difficulty in concealing the fact that he was gay. He suspected that this was really a covert ploy to flush out gay members of staff While ostensibly doing nothing more sinister than keeping Ed Wilson under control, even though he was suspicious, he couldn't help but be amused. The thing was so absolutely typical of the way straights would pick up on something introduced by the gay community and rob it of all the things that had made it worth doing in the first place. (laughs) And I just loved that. I thought it was because, yeah, because I suppose it's one of those because of the nature of it and that sort of binary setup of a gender setup there wasn't much room to sort of discuss those sort of nuances so I liked how she and it was just like fucking all the straights are at it again
1: (laughs) um one of my favorite bits just in terms of the comedy of it um it's about halfway through when um because it certainly initially there's only a certain number of employees who are invited to make use of the Lightning rods, um, and the rest of the male employees uh, don't know what's going on. And there is an employee called Roy, mm-hmm. who um, is not of sufficient status to be invited to take partake of a lightning rod, um, but he realises that something's amiss. He realises basically that no one's been off sick. He works. Um, he works in HR. Um, he loves M um, and <laughs> He's he's just he's starting to realise that something is is quite uh, odd going on, and he tends when he goes to the toilet at work, he tends to use the disabled toilets because he is a larger gentleman and finds the bigger cubicle more comfortable. Um, Roy was about to pull himself to his feet when he heard a funny kind of click. A panel had slid open in the wall beside him. Roy stared. In the hole revealed by the panel were the soles of two bare feet pointing downward. While he watched, some kind of mechanism must have, have been operating because gradually the feet moved out into the room. Bare calves came into view, bare thighs, bare holy mackerel. <laughs> he was looking at the lower, the naked lower portion of a woman. The mechanism stopped. He couldn't see anything above the waist. As it was, he could see plenty, and then some. <laughs> I just, <laughs> it's just Freud, then panicking, going, "Oh, I've got to get out of here." <laughs> it's just, This is taking a turn. Um, Poor old Roy. Got uh, slightly more brilliant bargain for there.
0: Yeah, and Um, I thought that was one of the things, because when I started reading this, I'm like, how's she going to sustain this for, you know, how many pages is it? Is it 300? Nearly 300 pages. And I was like, how's she going to sustain this? But actually, there's plenty of tension in it. And I mean, that bit with Roy is hilarious and sort of sets off a whole trail of Roy trying to find out what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, as well as like Renata and up there. So there's always little, not necessarily little, but there's always something coming up that's like sort of causes a problem, which I thought was great. One of the other things that I did want to mention, which to me summed up like almost everything that I think is wrong with society <laughs> at the minute, is that when um, Joe tries to sell these, one of the things he does is tell people some research. <laughs> And he admits this to the reader, at least. He generally just made up whatever research he wanted on the baboon, since actual studies of the baboon might not support the points he wanted to make. Similarly with statistics, a good salesman has a feel for the statistics that will carry weight in a particular context, and will tend to go with his feeling, rather than with what scientists have come up with in some totally unrelated context. And slightly later on, when uh, some of the men are deciding whether they should... Some companies are deciding when they should take it. Some of them are deciding when they should use it. The research is what's cited as the thing that sways them. And I was just like, welcome to 20th, 21st century society. This is it in a nutshell. Absolutely. I'll tell you one thing, though. I don't know if it's a failure,
1: failure of imagination on my part, but I can't get my head around how the mechanism works. Because <laughs> I was trying to work out, like obviously it's meant to be so that you can only see the lower portion Mm -hmm. of the woman but they reverse through a hole in the wall so how do they do that without you being able to see the rest of her
0: through the hole in the wall I don't know Kirsty. perhaps it's got some sort of like thing what's the word that I want to use I don't mean curtain but you know like a But surely, if there was a curtain, they could lift the curtain to see. I'm picturing one of those sort of rubber things. (laughs) It's like quite. I don't know. Don't know. Because if they come in on a trolley Mm.
1: and they come in feet first, then surely there's got to be a big enough gap to get Mm. the whole woman through. But surely that means that then there's space, unless it like then closes around them, so it closes around their stomach. I've spent far too long thinking about this and I still can't. I'm not inviting people to write in. <laughs> but I'm just saying I can't visualise it. And I think that's probably a good thing.
0: Possibly. Whether it is annoying. You've got me wondering all sorts now that I'm not sure is entirely appropriate <laughs> <laughs> from this podcast. Oh dear. I mean it's to just there. Be- some of Joe's some of Joe's fantasies are are far more elaborate than that. Oh, yeah. Do you know what? Elaborate. To be fair on that point, he has this bit where he's starting to think about because his problem with this when he so he's the first person to try it out, because obviously he has to try it out, blah blah blah, and then realizes that it's not what he thought it would be. And part of the problem is, as you said at the beginning, that what he actually imagines is a rape fantasy. And this isn't a rape fantasy because there is now some element of consent and anonymity, anon- anon- I can't say that word, anonymity. <laughs> anon- and he imagines this, It gets to a point where he imagines this one where it's um, a, tea, a football team, an American football team and the cheerleaders on opposite sides of the wall and when he did that I was like this doesn't make any sense how's that and it, and it, I think that was the point where we started talking about which position they were in because I was like surely that couldn't work that's not possible yeah. <laughs> so who knows I've just
1: remembered another line that made me laugh and it's it's it, it's one of those lines that I go I should I be laughing at this mm. it's when um one of the guys who tries it Obviously, it's a very different ambiance to <laughs> that which you would normally expect. And <laughs> It just says, the disability facility lacks a lot of the features you typically looked for in sex. Tits, for example. <laughs> I'm not sure
0: if I should be laughing at that, but I found it very funny. <laughs> I've, I think there's lots of bits in it that like probably shouldn't be laughing at that is hilarious. But never... <laughs> Well, despite the, the misogyny it's never lots of it is about actually how inclusive some things are, which are not necessarily like mass appropriate, but like was already mentioned, like in terms of disability, it's thought about because of the adjustable toilet, mm. and you know what I mean there are things unexpected consequences, shall we say, yeah
1: yeah and also not necessarily intentionally because we're not you know joe is not a bastion for the kind of progressive thinker i mean he thinks about the adjustable height because he sees this little person on a bus and Mm. starts chasing after him in the street (laughs) trying to see how he gets on the bus and stuff so it's not done in a kind of um you know it's not his his um the positive developments are accidental as you say yes um,
0: but I think DeWitt manages to do it in a way that it's not offensive which I think skill yes. in something like this I think it'd be very easy to write something that is potentially offensive and pass it off as like yeah but it's just part of the world that I've created
1: yeah totally
0: less a writer might try and get away with or a man
1: <laughs> well this is actually what I was going to ask
0: you do you think it makes a difference that this was written by a woman absolutely yeah I do too. Hugely. I think if it had been written by a man, I'd have just been like, Ugh. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I don't ever think there's a, I'm wondering now, because you said before we started recording that it reminded you of Percival Everett's, because it's mm. so typical and American.
1: He... Tonally, not in terms of the, Yes, you
0: know. but he's probably one of the few writers that could pull it off. That's possibly not that <laughs> I should have used. <laughs> But he could probably write a book like this and and do it well. But again, perhaps that's because he's black and therefore from a marginalised group himself. That don't always that does not always play out as I have assumed there. But I think he's he's a fucking phenomenal writer and probably could.
1: Like yeah.
0: Along these lines, but I don't know if there's anyone else that I can think of that could do it. I
1: think anyone that writes this sort of book has to have a massive amount of self awareness. And mm. I've feel like Percival Everett probably does have the requisite amount of self-awareness to be able to write it. But no, I agree with you. I, th- I think that it, it would be very difficult. It, it, would, it would feel like a very different sort of prospect if it was written by a straight white man. Mm. Oh yeah, absolutely. Now, <laughs> <laughs> oh God, right. Um, questions of does it make a difference who writes a book mm. i think are also very relevant for the second book we're talking about which is the appointment by Katharina volkmer uh ooh, where do we start Shall i just read the back of the book mm. I, like this is how so this is how the back of the book talks about the novel in a well-appointed examination room in london a young woman unburdens herself to a certain dr seligman Though she can barely see above his head, she holds forth about her life and desires, her struggles with her sexuality and identity. Born and raised in Germany, she has been living in London for several years, determined to break free from her family origins and her haunted homeland. In a monologue that is both razor sharp and subversively funny, she takes us on a wide ranging journey from outré sexual fantasies and overbearing mother's to the medicinal properties of scribble tales and the enduring legacy of shame. With the appointment to her audacious debut novel, Katharina Volkmer, challenges our notions of what is fluid and what is fixed and injects a dose of Bernhardian snark into contemporary British fiction. Which is all true. Um, but I feel like we need to point out that the, the subtitle of this book is The Appointment Brackets or The Story of a Cock. And that is what The Appointment is about. She It becomes clear throughout the, the novel. And it's a really short book. I mean, it's 96 pages. Still took me four days to read it, but it's 96 pages. <laughs> um, she is having a consultation to have a uh, surgery that will give her a penis. I'm trying to think the best way to word it because actually, I think what is one of the things that's quite difficult about this book is it is the questions of identity. Um, she uses female pronouns throughout, she refers to herself largely as a woman and as a girl, you know, when she's talking about her childhood, but yet she is there to, you know, carry on the physical transformation. Into a man and plans to take her, her her sort of dead brother's name and so on and so forth. Um, lots of questions around that. Lots and lots of questions. But the other main main thread through the book is the fact that it is German. She is German. Um, she is talking a lot about German's history, about the Holocaust, about the way that Germany has treated Jewish people and anti-Semitism. And she is sort of obsessed with the fact that the doctor she is seeing is a Jewish person. Um, So, yeah, it's identity on those two fronts. There's identity in terms of uh, being Jewish, being German, but also in terms of male, female, gender identity. Where do you want to start? (laughs) I mean, all of it's just quite controversial, really, isn't it?
0: It is quite controversial, and I don't. I mean, we just talked about lightning rods. I don't have a problem with controversial books. I had a problem with an element of this, and other elements I found really interesting. Mm. I think um, it took me well, I read it in a day, but I also had COVID when I read it. So I sort of and I thought, oh, whiz through this. It's 96 pages, two hours tops. No, it took me all day like picking it up and putting it down, and not necessarily because I had COVID, but because. It's, it's really dense. I mean, really it's basically dense. a monologue and she covers quite a lot of topics, some of which should just seem to be throwaway and others which she goes in, into more detail. And I don't know whether I really got to what she was trying to do and I don't know whether that's my fault or the fault of the writing. I'm not really sure. Um, things that I thought were interesting, so in terms of the... Um, talking about race and the holocaust um so i did read i know we normally talk about it's normally you that's been off to read like other things but it was me because at this time because i was trying to work out like not just what i thought of it well yeah not what i thought of it as such but trying to figure out what the writer was trying to do and there was a piece in the uh, guardian l hunt had interviewed her and she talked about um, that Germany needed a reckoning with the Holocaust, that people have stopped talking about it, that it's become shameful, that there's this sort of silence around it. And there's a bit fairly on in the um, book. Um, and, and this is part of the tension of it because Dr. Seligman is Jewish and she's German. So she seems to have very deliberately gone there. And she says this to him, but even today, Dr. Seligman, for a German, a living Jew is quite an excitement something that no one prepared us for when we were growing up. We were only used to dead or miserable Jews staring at us from endless grey photographs or from somewhere far away in exile, never smiling at us forever in their debt. And our one way of making it up to you was by turning you into magical creatures with fairy dust coming out of every hole with superior intellects, curious names and infinitely more interesting biographies. In our imagination, no Jew would ever be a cab driver and there was even a page in my theology book dedicated to famous Jews. And in our music classes we had to sing have a nagila in hebrew dr seligman 30 german children and not a single jew in sight and we sang in hebrew to make sure that we remained denazified and full of respect but we never mourned if anything we performed a new version of ourselves hysterically non-racist in any direction and negating difference wherever possible suddenly there were just germans no jews no guest workers no others and yet we have never granted them the status of human beings again, or let them interfere with our take of the story down to that ugly heap of stones they put up in Berlin to comment to commemorate the victims of the Holocaust. Have you seen that Dr. Seligman? I mean seriously, who wants to be remembered like that? Who wants to be remembered as the receiving end of violence? We are so used to being in control of our victims, and that's why even after all these years, I cannot quite suppress my amazement that you are alive outside our history books and memorial sites, that you have broken free from our version of you and that we are now in this room together doing what we are doing, that I can almost touch your lovely hair from up here. It's like a miracle. And I found that really interesting in, in terms of that. Conversation is it a conversation that people are having a few years back, or oh, well, which continues I think about race and people saying they don't see colour, and that idea of sort of whitewashing, I guess, um, uh. in a slight in a in a different way, I guess. Well. Use a erase, aren't they? So I, um, I, I see. I'm not sure. I think this is part of the problem with the book is that I don't know the correct terminology to use in all sorts of different uh, situations. But that sense of trying to erase something by, uh, you know, saying that everybody's equal in a time when we clearly are very much are not. And yeah, so I found that interesting.
1: I think it's also questions about how we memo- how we memorialise people and events and atrocities like how we collectively remember whether you know she says they're about who wants to be remembered as being on the receiving end of, the, of, of violence but actually if you didn't remember them if you didn't have some sort of memorial to them that's that's worse because i suppose there's you know the, the point of having a a public memorial is to remember and to remember that it happened um And I suppose in some ways it feels like what she is doing with her body becomes a sort of different sort of memorial um, in a way. I mean, she talks about, um, uh, I mean, this is, I mean, I I think spoilers, spoilers are coming. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, she talks about the fact that her great grandfather was a Nazi um, who worked at, Auschwitz. And she is using money that came from him to have this surgery to have to, um, she has purposely chosen a Jewish doctor to construct a penis. And she talks about how this is going to be, you know, she, she talks about her Jewish cock, basically. And this feels like this sort of subversive memorial that they, this, you know, transforming a body into a kind of memorial and a, a kind of different sort of identity. And that, you know, sort of absorbing, as it were, I don't know if absorbing is the right word, I don't feel, all the words feel inappropriate at this point, um, sort of claiming, because it's not a reclamation, claiming an element of Jewishness for herself, which feels like a hugely controversial thing to do. You know, it's that sort of claiming some sort of racial identity um, that isn't yours um, as a kind of penance, in a way. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, and I, f- I think part of my issue with this is that I am neither German nor Jewish nor trans, and I, like, I feel out of my depth, actually, on commenting on it. And yeah, I do. To you talk about that. I mean, I, I, obviously I've read that section, but listening to you talk about it, I'm like, that feels offensive to me. Now, I, I whether I it's my place to say so or not, it does feel horrifically offensive. And maybe, yeah. you know, I suppose there's a question then about whether it is valid to p- for people to write texts that are shocking. And I think my <laughs> answer to that is I don't know, actually. Would yeah. I? Well, I guess we're back to lightning rods would if that text had been written by a man I would have found it utterly offensive and it would have gone in the bin (laughs) so
1: yeah yeah and I and I think part of the problem is I felt the same way as, as you did I don't know if I've got this book and I don't know I was saying this to you just before we started recording you know a couple of years ago I would have just assumed I was stupid um and now I don't necessarily think I'm stupid, but I do wonder if I have missed something chronically in reading the book. Because like you, I am not German. I am not Jewish. I am cis. I am, you know, I, I am not I have none of the identities that are being talked about in this book. And therefore I, too, have a kind of gut reaction about what is offensive and what's not. But it's almost not my place to say whether something is offensive or something, not because I'm not the group that is trying to be either attacked or reclaimed or claimed or, you know, these are none of my identities. So I'm coming at it as as, as totally outside of all of that. And. I mean, I wonder whether that's part of the writer's intention, because. She's, you know, she she is German, but she lives in Britain. She works in Britain. It was published in Britain. I in mean, the back of the book explicitly talks about, con- you know, contemporary British fiction. Mm-hmm. So it is a it's a provocative and challenging thing for a writer to do, is to 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 write about and within identities that are not going to be, you know. Um, i'm not surprised she hasn't had this published in germany
0: <laughs> yes i f- i feel the same about that it, it did say towards the end of the piece i read that someone's now translating it and it's potentially going to be published there but it's taken quite a while i think to find a publisher uh, i also think i guess one of my issues with it i mean being provocative's one thing and that's fine mm. <laughs> i guess um, and I do, and I very much do not want to be one of those people that says certain groups can't write about other groups yeah. because that's bollocks. Clearly, like people can, but you do it with due care and attention. And I think yeah. perhaps this is what gets the heart of what I found really difficult about this book is that she she says in this interview that she she finds it really odd the whole um, I never know what to call this because it's bollocks, but discussion, debate, whatever the whatever you want to call it, around transness that's happened in Britain, which is horrific. Mm. And, you know, is, well, it's just questioning, you know, people's right to live really, isn't it? But Mm. that's the context that we live in, that this book's been published into. We're recording this on a day where Boris Johnson has waded into the debate with his fucking massive feet. Talking about, you know, this is this is a quote, this is not me, I absolutely do not agree with him, but talking about how biological males shouldn't be able to compete in female sports because at the minute there's a discussion about women's cycling. And so that's the context that you know we're reading this book within. There is this whole horrendous split um, mm. you know, between people who are trans allies and very vocal people who are against trans people's very existence. And I I don't know, perhaps the reason that she picked it is because that's happening and she sees some sort of correlation between, I mean, there is, is, of course there's a correlation and, you know, with (laughs) with the right wing, um, we saw what happened if you were, well, not just on Twitter, I think it was reported, at least in The Guardian, if not in other places, that it all kicked off Judith Butler's article in The Guardian, which directly linked the transphobic, the anti-trans movement to the two right wing um, groups mm-hmm. had had to be edited, caused all sorts of controversy, even though, like, you know, it was fact checked. The links are there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, perhaps, perhaps. You know, Volkmers using that for that reason, but it just it feels icky. Actually, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. It and it 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 doesn't feel icky because of the obviously controversial. I mean, you know, the book opens with the the um, sort of protagonist talking about having sexual fantasies about Hitler. Mm. You know, that's almost the least controversial thing. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? That's that's absolutely fine. Um,
0: well, you know, we've seen Fleabag wank into to Barack Obama, and I know he's not he's not <laughs> on the same level as Hitler. But you know, I think would it's not as controversial. Barack
1: Obama is not Hitler. Be. No, that well, is he's not that Hitler.
0: Is, but no. do you know what I mean? In terms of that, <laughs> it felt very sort of flea ish yeah, 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 yeah. You know, no, absolutely. Religious
1: it's um yeah i think also something that i'm not quite sure again this could be totally mean misreading i'm fully open it to it you know just me not getting it but it talks about on the back of the book about fluidity Mm. um and that guardian interview that you referred to talks about kind of the character as being non-binary now i'm not going to say what you know, what someone should identify as. Obviously, that's the the whole point is identity is is personal and, you know, people feel about their identity however they feel. But from reading it, I didn't get... I actually got a sense of quite the opposite from fluidity because it, it felt to me as if the character who, as we said, sort of refers to herself throughout with female pronouns, the way I read it, the way it read to me was she would only become a man once she had the penis um it felt like that was the kind of decisive like you know once i've got it, i will call myself this and i will you know she talks a bit about having worn you know masculine clothes but other than that you know that it felt very much like that was the kind of watershed on her identity and that felt to me quite the opposite of fluidity do you know what I mean? That didn't feel non-binary to me, that 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 felt moving very decisively at a single point from one identity to the other identity. So that was sort of the main thing that I took issue with. Again, I don't know if that was some sort of, I mean, maybe that was done ironically, maybe that was done as a, as a kind of comment on sort of gender essentialism or biological essentialism or whatever, but um, if it was, I missed it, which may well be my fault, but
0: Yeah, no, I felt, I felt the same way about that, that it didn't seem to me that there was a point of fluidity anywhere, actually. No. (laughs) No, no. I mean, and lots of what she talks about is issues with, is is issues with women, women, like, you know, not issues with women, women's issues.
1: Mm.
0: So she tries to get a sex robot made with a penis and that's controversial because they don't <laughs> they don't exist. And she has quite a lot of chat about that. Um, well, I forgot she talks about her value as a young woman. She's she's in her thirties now, so she's screwed. <laughs> she talks about getting it. Uh, oh, like um, women end up looking like cakes, <laughs> <laughs> Rust up. She talks about getting a baby on board, badge, because yeah. That- ad but then talks about how then you become public property so all these things that are quite traditionally um you know female concerns are the things that are talked about at least during the first half of the book Mm. so yeah
1: yeah the sex robot bit was interesting especially in light of also having lightning rods as well that sort of that way of dealing with the kind of physical impulse towards sex um but they sort of came and went i mean i suppose that in a way that's the sort of as it were um i suppose that's the sort of issue with with monologues um in that it it does have that sort of stream of consciousness and i think that's what makes it look difficult to read but certainly you have to concentrate i certainly felt like it was a book where i needed to engage my brain as i was trying to read it um, and why it took me so long to read such a short book um because it does in the way that monologues do, roam from place to place to place and back here. And, you know, and, and in that sense, it, it put me in mind of Disoriental, which we read a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. or talked about a couple of weeks ago with that sort of circular, you know, speaking out loud, oral culture kind of structure but I felt like Disoriental was much more successful at it. But then there was such such a kind of cast. I mean, not to compare those, but there's such a wide cast of doing different things. But but that sort of circular structure is the way that people talk. Um, and the other thing that struck me about that is that Dr. Seligman is 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 very purposely not given a voice Mm. I mean again she talks in that interview about it being a conversation or so the interview I'm not sure if it she does or the comment or the the author the interviewer does but that piece says somewhere in about it about it being a conversation and actually it's not a conversation it's it's a monologue there are references to the fact that he's asked questions because it's it's worded in such a way of what's that you asked whatever well etc um So that's a very conscious decision to remove his voice from it and actually to therefore to remove the Jewish voice from a monologue by a German person about how we, um, how we talk about or or how Germans do or do not reckon with the Holocaust and, and Jewish identity. So I thought that was a, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a choice. And again, I don't know if this is satire that I've missed or i don't know
0: i I wonder from what she said about um in that interview about silencing about the silence around it that she's deliberately only it's only been a german voice because it's a german person finally talking about and i guess the bit where Mm. and 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 you don't find out i know you'd said when you mentioned it before it's a spoiler but literally it's the last page when you find out that her great-grandfather was not just any Nazi, it was the station master at Auschwitz. She was the last mm. person they would have seen before um, going through the gates. So, you know, which is which in, in a book that's full of shocks is a really shocking moment, I found, mm. at least when, when, you know, that's revealed. So, yeah, I did wonder if whether that silence was deliberate because then it meant a German person was discussing this thing that she says they've stopped talking about.
1: Yeah, it could be that. It, it, could, uh, it Or I also wonder whether it's, you know, a German person speaking over a Jewish person, because that is what keeps happening. I, and I don't know, it could be either, it could be both. It could be neither. I could have missed the point entirely.
0: I guess one of the my things about this book, and actually because... You know, like, I turn things over when I'm, I turn corners over when I'm reading for the podcast and then go back through it before we um, meet. And I kept picking up things that I, I couldn't remember from when yeah. I read it, which I don't think was just the COVID, <laughs> COVID haze. But, you know, bits where you go, oh, that bit, so, ah, so she had referred to that then and and. Mm. Oh, oh. And what, one of the things I found, I don't know whether this is as I'm getting older or it's because I write or what it is, but I found that the more, the books that I find more interesting, the ones that I want to go back to, and I'm not necessarily saying that I want to go back and reread this, but I think it's one that, that I suppose I would encourage people to pick up just to see. I'd be really interested to have a conversation with someone else who'd read it um, there's loads to think about in it for 96 pages. I mean, it's stuffed full of.
1: Oh, I mean, it's, it's absolutely jam packed with stuff. Um, the baby Jesus machine. I just, I'd forgotten about that. If so I just clicked to that page there. um, Yeah, I, I did for all that, you know, I've said, I'm, I'm not sure I necessarily got it. I'm also not sure that I didn't like it. Mm. You know, there were bits. I think there are bits that were really funny and really well written. And you know, there's, there's a kind of there's such a strong sense of of character with that main protagonist. I just, I'm not sure. I quite got what she was trying to do mm. with it in a in a bigger sense. You know, even even having you know heard a bit more about you know her talking about talking around it and 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 what she was trying to do with it yeah my my reaction is sort of oh that's not what i got that's that isn't what i got from reading the book yeah um but you know as i say that's that's not to say it's a it's a bad book at all i don't i don't want that to be it's not a critical comment it, it might just be that i was I was the wrong reader. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I just—I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Don't know.
0: I think it's perfectly valid for to say we don't know. <laughs> don't know. Just don't know.
1: There's a quote for the cover.
0: Don't, I don't know. That's Make not allowed in my classroom, but we're not in a seminar, so it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair, yeah, this isn't a seminar. What I mean. I reckon we've given a good 15, 20 minutes about what we think about it. It's not that yeah. we've got no answers. I mean, we've got no answers, but we've got plenty to discuss. So, yeah, that's what we need is another voice. We do. <laughs> Someone to be the third person. person or late to it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Applications too.
0: Well, we better let them know what we're reading next week if that's the case. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So next week we are reading Fun Home. Alison Bethdale, our first graphic novel. Yay! Yay! I love a
0: graphic novel. It's 10 years
1: Wow. And the other book is um, The Mistress's Daughter by A.M. Holmes, which I'm really looking forward to. It's a memoir. I have read, um, all I've read by her before is her book that won the Orange Prize or whatever it was called at that particular point.
0: Yes, that was the only thing that I'd read, I think. What's that called? Uh, May we be forgiven?
1: Yes, thank you.
0: Um,
1: I've read that, but I'm looking forward to reading the memoir.
0: I'm just going to keep quiet because I've already done the reading. Ah, Get me? (laughs) Such a swat. I know. Well, it's because we had that gap and because I didn't, you know, I was just ill and so I've cracked on. Anyhow. That's next week. In the meantime, you can subscribe to Let's Tweet wherever you get your podcasts or you can follow me and Kirsty on Twitter. Kirsty is at the other Kirsty and I'm at Naomi Frisby. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you.